We've been thinking about the certainty of the Savior. That's our uh, title for this series. And Luke, if you're new here, if you're visiting, we've been walking that through. We're in chapter 3, so if you turn there, we're going to do a little review to kind of set the table for this morning. Because one of the challenges with a passage of Scripture, with a text, is when you go back... You don't want to jump immediately to where you are. You want to find out what's going on in the text. And then you can build bridges of how that actually works in our life. So we've been thinking about the idea of repentance and what repentance is. And the idea that I've been surfacing, I want to put it on the screen for you, we change. Uh, When we change inside, it'll be made visible on the outside. Now, you might think, well, duh. Uh, but many people don't think that. Many think people think you can repent, you change your mind, but it never makes it to the street level of your life. And what we've been seeing is that's simply not true. Biblical repentance always manifests itself in a change. It always does. Maybe not perfectly, maybe not forever. But it has to. And we've been thinking that through and we were entertaining last week an idea that I hope you found helpful that I think that's born out of the teaching of Christ. Let me grab my props. And we've been thinking through this idea. Uh, Jesus arrives on the scene and there's a lot of people when it comes to this idea of repentance and truth. They've been hearing the, the teaching of the law for so long that they'd manufactured their way around it. And they had created an identity around uh, being a Jewish person. In other words, they're Abraham's child, so they're in. So the idea that they're they're absolutely fine as it relates to the holiness of God, that was put on one of the one of the top shelves, one of the shelves that were dusty. And the idea is is that when John the Baptist shows up, and by the way, last week I mentioned uh, Jesus as if he was John the Baptist. Some of you, there was an over-under going on. How many times I'll mention Jesus in the role of John the Baptist? Uh, I think there was some betting going on in the balcony on that. I apologize. Uh, I meant John the Baptist. So if I screw that up this morning, uh, please correct it in your mind. So the idea of a wall. You see, when Jesus was getting ready to show up and John the Baptist is preparing the way. People were like a wall when it came to the truth of who God is. They had created an identity around their performance. And so when John the Baptist shows up, there's two types of people that are near the Jordan. The people that are like the wall, the truth hits them and bounces off. But there's other people, like we see in the book of Revelation 2.5 in the church at Ephesus, Uh, It says, remember, repent, and do to the church. They were like this tube. You see, they had, they hear the truth, then they repent into John's baptism, and their life is changed. We said last week there were three particular people in the crowd who this would pertain to. And it was interesting because they actually want to make a change. They want to intentionally uh, be who they're meant to be, you could say. They recognize that they've fallen far from God and their performance is not up to the task. And so if you look in your Bibles, we're just going to read the passage we talked about last week and how that looks at that passage in verse 10. So if you put that up there. We're going to look at that together. The idea of this, and the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share 
with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. You see, they recognize that they need to repent before God, but they also saw that repentance has got to make it into their life. So what shall we do? Notice the transaction here. Three groups of people, the whoever's, the tax collectors, the soldiers, or the officials. They want to move from being a wall to being a tube. And we said last week is, if that's true, if you really want to change, he said for the whoever's, the tax collectors, and the soldiers, or the officials, and we talked about who they are, you can listen to the last week's message we walked that through. But the underlying principle is, we want to change, so what's true, we recognize we need to repent, but they're going, what does that mean for us? And he says, this is what you were doing, this is what you need to be doing. This is what you were doing, this is what you need to be doing. So that's the underlying kind of like lava underneath the surface that's flowing through this text. Now, we also said when it comes to applying this, we can apply it in different ways. But we said, what would this look like? Back in then, Christ had not come yet. But we said, since Christ has come, what does that look for us? You see, they were saying, how does repentance live in our life? And then this morning, we'll talk about the object that will be better than the repentance, because repentance can only get you so far. They need an object to put their faith in so that they can be made right with God. See, repentance can only have a certain level of existence in your life. You repent, you change, you repent, you change. The problem is, is they need a savior who can take their sins away. But we said last week when it comes to us, we look back and we live lives of repentance. Not in order to get God's favor. Our identity is not in our performance. Our identity is in Christ. But anybody who's a follower of Christ will find the rhythm of their life is around that idea of repentance. Hearing the truth, repenting, change. And you're going to live in that place. Matter of fact, the older you get, the more mature you are, the more you'll realize your need to repent. You don't repent to get on good side of God. You repent because of what he's done and because of his goodness. And as you draw closer, you realize his holiness. You start seeing the nooks and crannies of your life and you realize, man, I'm not what I want to be. Understand this, when you feel that, that's a good thing. When you feel that tension, because what happens is the terminus for that shouldn't be, I got to be better, I got to be better. The end is not, the, the end is, thank you, Jesus. Now what can I do to change? Do you see the difference there? If you mix that up, you're going to have a problem. You're going to be like the religious leaders in Jesus' day who have individuals. I or, starting in verse 25 and moving through, this idea of putting off, putting on, that Christ talks about with the whoever, the tax collector, and soldiers. Do this. You did this. Do this. Did this. Do this. Paul now lays it before us. He lays these, these examples, and you'll see this in Ephesians chapter 4, as I said, 25 through 32. You see it in Colossians chapter 1, 1 through 17. And he has this idea of, Put this off, put off this 
earthly living for a heavenly focus. Put off falsehood for telling the truth. Put off malice and anger for kindness and compassion. You can read it later. But what this means in the life of a Christian, I've got to make that distinction. If your life is secure in Christ, it's not that you do this to get on God's good side. You're on God's good side because you're in Christ. But what we struggle is to live by faith. And so we need to put off things that are rooted in our control, in our comfort, and our desire from approval from other people. We need to put those things off, and we need to put on the opposite. Romans 8, 12 talks about this in terms of putting to death the misdeeds of the body. You simply don't just stop lying. You determine to tell the truth. How do you put to death that misdeed? You remember somebody you lied to, and you go confess it. You see, the putting off, putting on, if you want to go after it and kill the root, you have to humble yourself. I remember the first time I did this. I'd been a Christian for probably a week and a half. I was living in a dorm. And I remember, and I don't even remember totally the story. I just remember I told a lie. Something about myself. To one of my uh, dorm mates, these guys. There is no way they could have checked to see if I'd been telling the truth. No way. I didn't know any of these guys from Adam. I just met them. And frankly, I thought I was in a cult until I became a believer. That's another story altogether. But I remember as soon as I walked away, my heart was arrested. You just told a lie. And in that moment, I had a choice. I can bury it and go, that's not a big deal. He's never going to know. It's not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. Listen, you've said that, haven't you, to yourself? Oh, you've said it. It's not a big deal. It was a big deal to me because I'd just become a Christian. And I wasn't to measure it in light of what it may do or if it's a big deal, but in light of the fact that Christ had just saved me. And he tells me to tell the truth. I don't want anything to come in between my relationship with Christ. So I walked right up to this guy by the name of Dave, and I said, i got to tell you something, I just lied to you. And he looked at me like I had lobsters coming out of my head. What are you talking about? He said, that story, I told you. I didn't tell you the truth. And then I told him, and he goes, that's awesome. Thank you. And you see, I wasn't doing it to earn something with God. I was doing it because God had already done something for me. And I want to live up to what he's done. You see the difference? I'm not looking to be perfect and earn something I'm trying to reflect. It's not a ladder to get me someplace. It's a mirror to reflect the goodness and greatness of Christ. That's what we're talking about with the put off and the put on. And so as Jesus was telling them, yet to reveal himself in that passage, uh, Paul runs us forward and he says this in the passage. And there's five people we mentioned, again, really quickly, hitting this. Uh, The first guy we talked about was Mark. Mark is this up-and-comer. What does this look like in his life? He's climbing the ladder of success, but he's fudging the numbers. He's reporting a success that he's not had. So we know from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, he needs to put off falsehood. What does this mean for Mark? If he's going to be a tube and not a wall, that means he goes to his boss and says, I lied. 
He may need to come to some people in his church and say, can you help me with this? I'm addicted to success. I love success. The problem is I claim success when I don't have it. You see, and in doing this, Mark is going to find that he starts killing the misdeeds of the body. See, because repentance on the inside is always seen on the outside. If it only goes to Mark's mind, if he only repents in his head, it's not repentance. At best, it's remorse. We went on to talk about Emily. Emily, we said, um, she has a teenager, and the problem is is she's starting to let her friends kind of make her who she is. She's finding herself uh, talking about and gossiping about the girls that aren't the cool girls. She's made it into the group, and she started to lie about her parents. She started lying to them about where she's going, what she's doing, how she's dressing, how she's acting. She's arrested by this. What does repentance look like for Emily? What does it look like to be a tube and not a wall? It means that she has got to recognize her identity in Christ, that she's not trying to live up to what other people think about her, because you know what that's called? It's called idolatry. In other words, I'm making people more important than God in my life. When I bow to peer pressure and I let some people dictate what I should say and what I should do and where I should go, now all of a sudden, I don't have idols in my room and I don't have statues on my front lawn, but you better believe I have idols in my life because I care more about what they think than what God knows. She needs to go to her parents and confess what she's lied and she needs to find her identity in Christ, be in a church that'll help her understand and be in a church that'll pray for her. That's Emily's story. Then we moved on from Emily and we saw the next person in our story, Rachel. We said that Rachel struggles with the fact that she used to be in the corporate world. She's got kids now, but she's finding her mind drifting back toward what it would be like to be in the corporate world, bring another paycheck in, maybe have a, a better car, maybe a better vacation. Rachel realizes that she has an, an earthly focus, Colossians chapter 3, that first verse, instead of a heavenly minded life. She sees her kids as something less than she should. That God has given her a calling and a mission. And she begins to flirt with a mere job. And see, the world will press in. The reason why I'm not quoting kind of the big ticket things is because this is where we live. And this put off, put on, this idea of wanting to be a tube and not being a wall is going to be in our life all the time. When you see people have the nice things and you start looking at your kids and go, man, if I didn't have so many kids, I would have more nice things. In that moment, you got a choice. Will I be a wall or will I be a tube? We moved on from Rachel. We said, John, a great guy. People love John. Uh, Seems to be a dedicated dad, loves his family, loves his kids. The problem is John has an anger problem. And you see, like Emily, John's problem relates to idolatry, but in a different way. See, Emily's trying to get in with her friends, but John is trying to control his environment. Anger's a great thing to control your environment. Have you found that to be true? I found out when my kids were younger, if I yell, they act. It's pretty easy. You know, parents fall into that. You yell loud enough, people stop what they're doing. And that's what you wanted them to do. If you threaten them enough, They do what you want. Till they get to about 15 or 16 or 17 or 18. The anger doesn't work, does it? And the kids walk. You see, anger is never sufficient for the moment. There is a righteous anger. Don't kid yourself that. We know that from Colossians. It's very clear in 
verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3. But for John, he's got to put off that malice and that slander. He's got to put on kindness and compassion. What does that look like? It means that he repents and he goes to his kids and says, I'm sorry I was angry. Would you forgive me? Now, some people go, parents should never ask kids for forgiveness. You'd be wrong if you think that. And here's the thing. If you want a parent, you want a model. And if you've never apologized to your kid, well, you've got two choices. Either you're a Messiah or you're not being truthful. And I'm betting you're not the Messiah. That's just my insider ball. John's got to work on that. Susan harbors resentment toward people. People in the church, somebody who's uh, kind of crossed her path, she doesn't like them. They didn't really do anything to her, but she thinks she did. And over time, go from uh, frustration with them to resentment to full-blown bitterness. What does Susan need to do? Repentance for Susan means that I'll go confess that to that person. You know, so it's interesting in the verses that we looked at with the life of Christ, all of the situations relate to other people. When it comes to the whoever and the food and the tunic, when it comes to the tax collector, when it comes to the, the soldier, it all relates to people, doesn't it? How your life affects somebody else. And the way back, if we're going to put off, put on, if we're going to be a tube, not a wall, involves us going to the people and apologizing. I know it's not easy, but here's the thing. Don't look at them for your source of motivation. Look at Christ. What would Christ have you do? What did Christ, how did Christ treat you when you didn't deserve it? And now how will you treat them in repentance? Now about this passage, that verses 14 through, excuse me, 10 through 14, we just have the two, whoever, the tax collector and the soldier. Now our passage today is uh, riding on that, uh, that pivot point of, okay, we repent But what do we look to? We repent from what we've done wrong. But how do we deal with the fact that we've sinned against God? I mean, baptism, John, is great. We get wet in the water. We make things right. But there has to be more than this. There has to be an object of our salvation. In other words, we repent of our sins. But who's going to deliver us from our sins? We repent from doing wrong. We change our mind. And he says it needs that fruit on the outside. But who's going to rescue us from ourselves? And that's where we find ourselves in the past today. Look over in verse 15. And you see it in the first line where it says, as the people were in expectation. That's the idea. In other words, uh, he's saying this. He's pointing out people. People are crying out in the cry. He's pointing them out. And the people are like, what's next? What's next? Give us more than just this. It's like getting on a train. Where is this thing stopping? Getting on a plane. Where are we landing with this thing? They're in expectation. And they immediately move to more than repentance. They move to the idea of salvation, a deliverer. Because that's in their backstory as a Jewish people. It says, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Ding! It's like, maybe he's the guy. We're repenting. We've told Elijah in Malachi, the last couple verses there, there'll be one that comes. John, all of a sudden, says, I'm the voice of the one preparing a way. Okay, great. This is exciting. This is good. People start saying, how do I change? What do I do? Be a tube, not a wall. Now they start moving toward, okay, we're ready for the next thing. Are you the one? 
Are you the one? And then he says this, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in his fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now the good news is there's one who's coming. Uh, What would it look like if there was a group of people who uh, maybe were there for the first few days of John the Baptist and heard this idea of repentance? He's not baptizing them in deliverance, not salvation. Repentance, that's his baptism. What would happen if there were people visiting the area and they put up their hand in the crowd? Maybe they were standing next to a tax collector and Maybe they're standing next to one of the officials or the soldiers of the temple, which we talked about. And they said, me too. I'm only in town for today. I've got to leave. But I'm repenting. What if, is that sufficient for them to be saved? Is repentance sufficient? No. It's not sufficient. And you know the reason why it's not sufficient, because there were some people that were at the Jordan And they find a way, they came from Ephesus, they were back to Ephesus, maybe they were merchants. And by the time we get to Acts 19 verses 1 through 4, Paul is at Corinth. And he shows up there, and he then he goes to Ephesus, and he finds some disciples, and he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they go, no, we've never even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. He said, into what were you baptized? And they say, into John's baptism. So they'd been hanging out of the Jordan, going through this. They never made it to the passage that we're looking at today. They just said, yeah, I need to repent. I need to repent. I need to repent. And people might say, is repentance sufficient for salvation? Not to Paul, because he says, John's baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling uh, the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. You see, Jesus is superior to repentance of John because all repentance will do is deal with what is right, that you've sinned against a holy God. But that fact alone will not save you because you need a savior. You don't need just be pointed out that you've done wrong. You need a savior who will pay for the wrong that has been done. And so in Acts 19, we see that happen. What an amazing story. But now we find ourselves back in this passage. And what's interesting about this is, John, when he says this, I baptize you with water. And he's pointing out that Jesus is superior, particularly in his baptism. That's where we do it. There's two specific ways Jesus is superior. And the first is, he's superior in his baptism. I can get you wet. He can save your soul. And notice that he's not saying anybody can be the savior. It's his baptism. It says, he who is mightier than I is coming. You don't see it in English, but it's in the Greek. It actually says, the one. Or the idea of, he who is mighty, or he, definite article. The one is the implication. In other words, there is somebody, not anybody, Not anybody. And so now, where would this leave us today with our neighbors and our friends? Some people would say, well, uh, 
I've repented in my Savior's Christ. And then you begin to scratch and say, oh, who is Jesus? And they would say, well, he's the Christ. And for example, if you were talking to a Mormon, they would have the belief underneath their system of belief. They would say they believe that Jesus was a man just like you and I, a human. Then he became God. That is insufficient. Because the object of your faith has to be consistently true with Scripture. We'll talk about this more at the end, but this is very important. For a Muslim person, can a Muslim look for the one? If he repents of thinking Jesus is just a prophet. But if he believes what Islam teaches, that Jesus is a prophet, it doesn't matter how much he repents. He can never be saved until he comes to that point of belief. You see, he can go through the rituals. He could effectively, as the Jewish people were here, get wet. But he needs more than getting wet. He needs a savior. And that savior has to be consistent with the one who is coming. So the people in their expectation, well, how do we know that Jesus Christ is the one that John was speaking about? Well, we know this from John chapter 1, 19 through 37. After the day that John spoke this, John the Baptist, in verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this person I came with water that he might be revealed to Israel. In other words, John leaves no doubt that the one he is speaking about, the one who is going to baptize them, whose sandals he's not worthy to untie, which, by the way, was the role of a, a slave in that day. And he says, I'm not even to the slave level of the one who's coming. The next day, he puts that person as being Christ. Matter of fact, to be clear, it says that, uh, and he looked at, Jesus, as he walked by in verse 35 of John chapter 1, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Then you see the disciples who had come out to see John the Baptist. They begin to follow Christ. Why? Because Jesus is superior in his baptism. What's superior? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, it says in the end of verse 16. John can get you wet, and that wetness indicates that you're serious about your sin, that you violated the command of God. But I can't take the burden of the sin that you stood before a holy God off you. All I can do is see that what's on the inside now is changed on the outside, but the problem is, is that you need more than I can offer. And Jesus can offer that because he brings the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does that mean? It's a picture of renewal. The idea of the Holy Spirit is you are under the old covenant. Jewish people have come to the Jordan to be baptized. But you need a new covenant. You need a new contract with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You need a contract in which he renews you from the inside. Where is this coming from? And the Holy Spirit who could only get on the inside... And that idea of fire is a purifying thing. He's got to purify you on the inside. Now somebody might say, well, what's the big deal? Can't God just forgive sin? I mean, God can do whatever he wants, right? Why doesn't he just go, good try. Nobody's perfect. 
Come on in. Why does he do that? Because he's holy. You see, he's a holy God, so there has to be a satisfaction for sin. We're not the first people to actually talk about this. This happened in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if you turn back to Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, uh, really quickly, we're going to go through the very moments in which the first covenant was given that the Jews would relate to God in. This isn't the first covenant altogether, but as a people group, this is the first covenant after coming out of Egypt. This is the Mosaic covenant. And notice in chapter 24, we start in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are given, all these standards. In 24 verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rulers, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. All the words that the Lord has spoken we'll do. In other words, they signed on the contract We'll do everything God just says. Everything the Lord just said. Remember, he said, don't lie. Don't steal. Honor your father and mother. Have no other idols before me. And they're like, yeah, we'll sign us up. We'll perform to that level. By the time we get to Exodus 32, 1, 40 days, when all the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods that shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. In other words, we need a leader, and the best leader we can find is an idol we can make. Think about that. We'll sign on the dotted line. If you read more about the details of signing that agreement with the living God... Uh, the terms of the agreement is if they don't obey, God can take their life. And within 40 days, they're making idols. They had to repent. The problem is, is they could never find forgiveness for their sins. They could only repent of their sins. You see, that's why God gave the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They couldn't take away anyone's sin. But what they did is they basically said, we're serious about our sin. That's all the sacrifices could do. And so therefore, John's baptism is insufficient to handle the weight of sin that has been laid on the Jewish people individually because they'd all have made idols in their hearts, just like us. All of us have. So Jesus, we need him because he's superior because he'll bring the Holy Spirit and fire, a purifying fire. As we fast forward, you can see that at Pentecost. Can't you? Matter of fact, you can see that happening very clearly at Pentecost through the tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit coming. And that's how they knew the new covenant had arrived. So what they're saying in this passage, what John the Baptist is saying, they're not going to realize it till later. But you're an insider. You get to see it from a bird. So the idea of he's superior in his baptism. Notice the second thing that Jesus is superior in, according to John the Baptist. He's superior in his judgment. Look at verses 17 and 18. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. In other words, this one who is coming, whose baptism is superior to mine, it's not only his baptism, it's his judgment. You see, he will be the one judging. 
he will be the one who's given the responsibility to say who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's saved, who's damned. I don't do that, John. The his hand. When he says these things, that he is talking about the one. When he says there is the one definite article coming after me, then the rest of it in his judgment, he's the active force. He's the one doing it. So the big question we have to ask, the big thing that we have to urge our neighbors, friends, and maybe you're here today, you've never trusted Christ. You're not going to find anybody else. He's the one. And just like we said, the Mormons will put forth a, a version of Christ. Don't believe them. Jehovah Witnesses, Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Don't believe them for a second. Because while they might say that he is the one doing this, uh, the, the enemy is sly. That he'll say, yeah, he's like the Christ, or he's Christ-like. Matter of fact, do you know that there's Eastern mysticism, even Buddhists who are, they're atheists. They would think Jesus was the most enlightened one. They'd want you to follow after their version of Buddha. Harry Krishmas says the same thing. He was the most enlightened. The problem is, Jesus' judgment won't let that excuse or that understanding survive. You see, Jesus is the one who the Father sent or is nothing at all. We see this in Acts 4.12 where it says, There's no salvation, no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We must be saved. Uh, nobody escapes the must in that verse. Everybody, every human is under the weight of sin. And while the Jewish people could repent under the baptism of John the Baptist, they need more than just getting wet. They need the Holy Spirit. They need fire. And by the way, if they have not dealt with that, Jesus is superior in his judgment because he can cast their soul into hell. That term there where he talks about gathers wheat into the barn, clear the threshing floor, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Uh, it's the idea in the Old Testament, the threshing floor, they'd go up into a mountain area and they'd have wheat. And what they would do is they would throw up into the air the wheat and the wind would take the chaff. It was the surrounding of the wheat kernel. And that chaff was lighter, so the wind would blow it away. And then the, the, the nub would fall to the ground and they would gather up that wheat. That's how they would separate. They didn't have factories and warehouses. They would be at the threshing floor, threshing floor, threshing floor. And the picture is, Christ is the one threshing. He's throwing up, and the people have not trusted in him. Not just repented, but who are going to trust in him. The one he points out, he will be the one to judge them. When people say to you, if you talk to them about Jesus, and oh, are you judging me? <laughs> I can't judge you. No more than John the Baptist can judge. I can't judge. Jesus' judgment is superior. So the real question is, what does Jesus think about you? That's the real question. Have you trusted him as your savior? And I said that uh, the enemy is sly. The enemy will make Jesus to be something that he's not. How do you know? We know from the Bible. So if somebody, let's say a Muslim or Jehovah Witness or um, anybody out there, a Mormon, a Buddhist, Whatever they say, now we've got to go say more than just what you think. We've got to ask ourselves, what does the Bible represent Christ as? And historically, there are three terms, very, very important. We'll finish with this. 
Very, very important. We not only repent, but we also, it depends on who we think Jesus Christ is. So when it comes to history, there's three Latin terms that the church identified that are very, very important because we've got so many different beliefs about Christ running around today. The top part, the notitia, is the idea of the intellectual content of faith. In other words, who we put our faith in. This is where win or lose with false religions. You see, if the object of our faith is insufficient, in other words, it doesn't match up with what the Bible teaches, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It makes sense. See, a Mormon person, somebody who believed Jesus was a human and became God, that doesn't line up with what the Bible teaches. So it doesn't matter how much faith they have. The object of their faith is insufficient. In other words, Jesus is not going to, as he's winnowing people out, go, oh, well, great, you thought I was a guy at one point. Okay, I'm sufficient to forgive you. No, he said, no. I'm not a guy. I'm superior. I'm not like Moses. I'm not like Abraham. I'm not like anything. I'm God. You lose. See, who you think Jesus is matters in Jesus as the Bible. Because the, Jesus is just the emotional Christ. I do like a robot. I get a Then we're a lot of... No. It's him and him alone. Then we're a lot of people. I think in America fit is the third category. It's the idea of fiducia. The volitional or willful element which desire to follow Christ alone. So many people have put their hand up when they were five or six, walked down an aisle. Then they lived like the devil. And you ask them, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I walked down the aisle. No problem. Hold on a second. Does that affect the pattern of your life? If it doesn't affect the pattern of your life, if you don't find yourself repenting, don't claim to be a Christian. You see how that works. You know, it's interesting about this message that Christ gave. I think this fits with the Jewish people. By the time we get to the end of the life of Christ, how many people were in the upper room? How many people? We got thousands of people following after Christ. After John the Baptist, Christ comes, he points them out. People follow, people follow, people follow. We got 120 in the upper room. You see, they'd, they'd repented of their sin, but they had not embraced Christ. To them, Christ was a bad bet because he had died. They didn't trust Christ. Why were the disciples there? The disciples are there because they go, there's no other place we can go to. The fiducia, their will, it had changed them. They were changed people. There's no place else that they can look for salvation. They were convinced that Jesus was superior in his baptism and in his judgment. And so they're hanging on. Then Pentecost happens. 3,000 people are added. And by the time we have 18 years after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it says the world was turned upside down with the witness of the apostles. You see, there wasn't just an intellectual thing. Their will had been changed so that the fruit of their life was obvious. So we've got to ask ourselves in our day and age as a church, where are the fruits in the lives of people? Part of this is going to be, you're going to see it. You're going to see it in the issue of sexuality because it's most profound in how we relate to people. I can't tell you how many people, some good people, people that I know around the United States, uh, they have a family member who's all of a sudden gay. And now all of a sudden, 
they go, well, maybe the Bible doesn't teach what I thought it taught. Maybe it's okay. Maybe Christ calls us to love people. Maybe loving means going, hey, sexuality, maybe you can be born gay. And what happens is, is I've seen people walk down that road and I go, my concern would be for your family member. My concern really now is for you. Because if that's what you believe, your will now is involved and you're starting to shape and change who Christ is. I think over the next 20 years there's a winnowing that's going to happen in the church. And you're going to find people who you thought were in, but they're not. Because here's the thing. If you follow Christ, you follow what he teaches. And I guarantee you cannot find that excuse in the Bible that God is okay with homosexuality. You can't find it, people. Believe me, I've been talking to people about this other pastors. And the ones that are shaken on this, I go, this is easy. Met a guy uh, this week I haven't seen for 18 years. Knew his family really well. Sat down on, how you doing? We're talking back and forth, back and forth. Hey, where are you going to church? I'm going to this church. Oh, what do you think about this subject? Well, I think God's okay with that. Oh, I said, I fear for you. Because now it's not about that church. It's about you. You need to repent. You're going to be like a wall. Not a tube. God calls you. This is not a questionable thing. Now, I know it's difficult. We're having a conference this Saturday. How do you talk with people? How do you engage with people? How do you have compassion on people, but don't erode what is, erode what is true? I, I get all that stuff. But here's the deal. If you're a follower of Christ, you follow Christ. That's what John the Baptist starts with. He says, I can get you wet. I can't get you saved. Jesus is superior in his baptism. He's superior in his judgment. So take him seriously. Oh, by the way, there he goes. So you've got to ask yourselves, who, who do I believe Christ is? Is my life lining up with that? As the band is coming up, we started our service and we are thinking about the idea of God and his sovereignty. We're thinking of God and his glory. God, Christ is is worthy. We see in the passage the same thing. It's just consistent everywhere. But the question we have for our lives today is, does my life reflect that? The superiority of Christ. If you're wrapping your life around anything else, whether it's friends or a paycheck or what you might look like in the lives of other people, something else going on in your life, if he's not superior, if he's not your primary motivation, then you've got to stop and repent. And some of you might need even question, what do I think salvation is? Because if it doesn't affect the deepest part of who you are, it doesn't sound like it's what John came to point out Christ would do. You see, he's come to change us. Not make your life easier. Don't seek his hand, what he can give you, as much as you seek his face, of what he's done for you and who he is. Live up to what he's done to you and for you. That's the truth of scripture. And if we water that down as being something other than changing our lives, we don't have Christ. We have some fabrication of a Western culture. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful that um, you came to shoot straight 
Jesus, sometimes we think of you as um, mild and meek at the expense of being loud and lion-like. We've got to understand both of those things. Help us, give us wisdom. Help us to be a voice in this culture. Help us to be a voice in our community. Loving people well, but never compromising exactly what they need, and that's your lordship. And so would you help us? Thank you that you've done everything necessary, and now we're just trying to live up to what you've done. Not because we want to get on your good side, but because we are. And when we know that, when we feel that, when we meditate on that, it makes us want to be different because of your goodness towards us. Do a work in our heart and our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you stand together, let's sing about that this morning.